Before we begin, we would like to warn you that this episode contains genital-related discussion. Should any of you be offended by discussions relating to genitals, then please stop listening and find an episode that is not related to genital discussion. All complaints should be addressed to Dr. Bramwell, the Auditorium Podcast, England. Brackets, genital-related discussions, and will be looked at and filed in the Auditorium Biscuit Tin. The Auditorium. Fascinating talks, passionate people, biscuit-obsessed presenters. Hello and welcome to the Auditorium Podcast with me, David Bramwell, your presenter and oh, co-presenter. What a beauty. I've never seen one as big as that before. Morning, Dave. Morning. Oh, what a beauty. Oh. Oh. What do you reckon to that then, eh? <laughs> <sighs> Whoa! We talked about this, didn't we? We said if we were going to do an auditorium podcast yeah. on Big Willies, we yeah. were not, under any circumstances, going to fall into making puerile jokes That's and pretending, true. you standing there with a courgette in your hand that and your jacket unzipped, that... pretending on a podcast that you've got your knob out for the sake of some puerile entertainment. Oh, well, all right, OK. So, so put, put your courgette away, all or right. zucchini for our American listeners. Yeah. And and let's let's. I'll just sit this up tight. Let's. Oh, oh God! I nearly got the end caught there. there no, no, you no, you didn't. Cause that's your jacket, Dave. So just just let's. Don't let me have any got, fun, will you? We've got, we've got, we've got a, a real doctor. Yeah. Uh, talking. Not an actual doctor, not not yeah. like. You, anyway, sorry, carry well, on. Let, yeah. Um, we've got yeah someone who did actually, a qualification. Yes. Yeah. Don't rub it in, Dave. Away. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So look, we've got, a, we've got a genuine doctor who's talking on yeah. the psychology of penis size, how men around the world have responded to this and how they have insecurities about it. Yeah. It's a good, you know, it's not, it's not just a, a talk. Well, for, some people have insecurities, don't they? Others don't really have insecurities about that. Not if they've got a courgette in their hands, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. No, it's a good talk, isn't it? It's a very good talk. It um, is. It's excellent. Quite a, quite a long talk, isn't it? Uh, it's not, no, it's not too bad. It's, I don't know, it's about 15... It's, it's regular. Quite, quite impressive. Impressive size talk. Are you... No, 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 I'm just saying, you know. Just saying. It's got... It covers quite a lot of ground. It's quite quite wide. And it's broad and it's you know, got a lot of girth to its... <laughs> Sorry, carry on, carry on. Nothing. Here he is, um, <clears throat> Dr Alistair Good. It's got a big end to it. It has a big finish. <laughs> Here he is. Doctor Spurts Al- knowledge. Or- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> carry on. Disseminates, disseminates knowledge. Doctor Alistair All Good. Over his audience. Doctor Alistair Good talking on the from his big hairy balls. <laughs> here, here he is. Uh, here he is, Doctor. Apologies for my. I apologise. Co- co- Dave Manfield here. Yeah. Um, here he is, Doctor Alistair Good, giving a splendid talk on uh, penis size. Stop it. Stop it. Dave, stop it. It's a courgette. Oh, no, that, no, that isn't a courgette, actually. Oh, put it away. I'm, I'm actually a psychologist, and I like finding out about what science can say about things that are unusual subjects in, in popular culture. I mean, my area is unconscious 
processes. And also because I'm a cognitive scientist rather than sort of psychologist, I'm not going to talk about Uncle Freud because uh, most modern psychology doesn't really think that his, he was an integral part of the development of psychology, but he didn't really have any theories that are too relevant today. It still loiters in some vague dark corners of art history, art theory, but in modern psychology, people don't really think about Freud because he, he said some pretty wacky things. I mean, firstly, he was a massive coke fiend. He, he killed one of his patients by giving them too much coke to cure their masturbation. Um, oh, yes. What a way to go. So, I'm not going to really talk about Freud. I'm going to talk about the science of big willies. What's interesting for me is when you can find where a nice bit of real empirical science bumps into sort of some popular culture, weird popular culture thing that everybody knows about. And big willies do have that kind of position in society. It was quite a while ago, a lifetime ago, I happened to sort of spend a bit of time working in TV production, doing crappy jobs, but it was, it was paying my way to being a bit through being a student. And... This sort of d demonstrates what I'm talking about because we filmed behind the scenes there. It was really interesting, saw them making the waxworks, but also saw them repairing waxworks because sometimes they got damaged. But what was interesting was that actually the, you know, the thing, there was one that always kept getting damaged, one da waxwork that was always being damaged and they always having to pull it in and repair it and do stuff to it. Now you think that might be like an evil dictator that people hated or perhaps a, a controversial politician that had made a decision that people didn't like or maybe just one of those really annoying plastic celebrities who's probably got fewer real parts than their own waxwork. It wasn't them and you can probably guess who it was. It was Linford Christie and they kept having to get Winfrey Christie's waxwork and keep having to uh, fix that part of him specifically because people couldn't keep their bloody hands off it. So, you know, that was the one thing in the whole of Madame Tussauds that as people wandered around, they could leave every other waxwork alone, but they just had to go, when they got to Linford. And it was continually wearing out this thing. They had to keep replacing it all the time. So big will is that that just shows how kind of attractive and kind of, you know, appealing these things are. So I'm, I'm going to talk about the work of uh, a guy called Leon Kamen, who did this work about 20 years ago. So he was an interested, an interested, very interesting psychologist, did a lot of work in intelligence, in IQ, and particularly to do with IQ and different ethnicities. And it sort of came about that he started thinking about, about this story about the fact that Afro-Caribbean guys have got big willies. So he sort of wanted to look into that to see whether there was any truth, there was anything, any reality about it. He sort of went off to try and find some studies that would say, well, actually, you know, this is true or this isn't. And the only two he could find at the time when he first looked were run by, let's call them gentlemen's special interest magazines that you might find on the top shelf. Those. In, this is before the days of the internet, and in the days of the internet now, you know, you can actually find a few more of these studies. Willie sighs across Europe. <laughs> the Russians aren't, aren't doing terribly well. We're not doing much better in this country. <laughs> the two largest European members are the French and the Hungarians. The smallest are the Romanians. Do we imagine that this is actually true? I mean, do you imagine there are sort of hordes of jealous men lined up on the border of Romania, staring longingly into Hungary, really, really wishing they could be like them? Or hordes of Romanian women crashing across the border to find these Hungarian men? Well, of course, no, because this stuff is self-report data. 
there are a few problems with self-report data. Firstly, you know, somebody puts a message out saying, tell us about your woolly size. If you're hung like a Christmas tree light and a couple of raisins, you're not going to really write in, are you? Secondly, of course, um, there's no real definite standard way in which you can say, yeah, this is the way to measure a willy. Except if you've got US patent 7147609, which is a device for measuring penis volume using Archimedes' principle of displaced liquid. And of course, the other issue about measuring penis size, asking blokes to do it, is it's a bit like going out to a restaurant. Always had 15% for the tip. So it's that kind of thing. So Leon came and thought, well, what can I do to try and find some real, real evidence of this? And there are some things that sort of have to come together to actually get a proper study. Firstly, you need to have loads of young guys around about the same age from different ethnicities, of course. You also need to have some very strict hierarchical structure so that you can sort of force people, so there's not self-selecting, gets around the self-selection problem, so that you can actually all make them do it, because they have to. Need a scientist or some kind of medical professional to take the, take the uh, measurements accurately and consistently, which is important. Some weird background interest culturally in um, penis size for no apparent reason. And, of course, a vast amount of time on your hands, because there really are better things to do with your life. Anyway, so where on earth are you ever going to have found these five things coming together at the same time? In the French Foreign Legion, of course, in the late 1890s. Who decided to measure their willy sizes as a proper big study of kind of physicality and performance and whatever? So what did they find? Well, there are lots of stories about willy size and different parts of the body. So hand size, oops, hand size is, is not one that is any predictive, not width or hand length or this thing, D2, D4 ratio, about finger ratio, none of that stuff correlated, nor did shoe size or, or foot size rather. So uh, you might be disappointed if you try and meet a clown. And of course, what they did find is certainly amongst the ethnicities that they were looking at, which was African, um, Middle Eastern and European, there was no indication that ethnicity actually predicted penis size. So where does this idea come from? And this is kind of why Leung came and looked into this when he, when he first sort of, you know, was doing the subject. It's actually, it comes from a very, very negative and awful historical thing which is the slave trade. Because when people were first, to, you know, getting slaves and getting them over, and they would kind of validate it and say, what, you know, it's okay to do this because these people aren't really people. They're, they're animals. They're kind of more animalistic. They, they've got these animalistic urges. They've got these really lusty libidos, and they're going to commit rape more and do terrible, terrible things like that. And because of this, they've got big willies. Which again doesn't really make sense though. I mean, why if you've got a really big strong libido, would you actually have a big willy? It just, and Leo came and kind of said, well, this doesn't make any sense. So, so we sort of looked around for some more information and was there anything else out there that could sort of indicate something? And he found that actually, when the first settlers started go, first explorers started going to these countries and sort of, you know, before we did all the terrible things like nicking their stuff and enslaving them, they got to know the indigenous population. And they'd say kind of, you know, after a while, the, these guys sort of, you know, talk to the, in, the missionaries and they say, you know what, when we first saw you, 
coming through, coming across the plains. You were wearing those really funny things, weren't you? Those those odd things you got on now. What they're called? Trousers, shorts. They are them things, right? We thought you won't believe it. We thought that your willies were so big you had to wrap them around yourselves three times and tuck them in like that. So it's just a willy holding device. That's what that's what they thought trousers were. So they thought the same of kind of the white man when he went out into. This has came from different sources over the world. So there does seem to be a relationship with sort of something weird and different, and people think it's got a big willy, or if it's human, it's got a big willy for some reason. What they found was that as you got closer to the guy, he became more intimidating, and as he became more intimidating, willy size went up. <laughs> which is a bit odd. I mean, why would that be the case? Well, you can sort of get that from the why the sort of the, the modern world that we live in and the sort of the things that we references to big willies that we we know out there in popular culture if you've got a big car it's a willy substitute isn't it because you've got a small one or a, particularly in america if you've got a big gun that's meant to be indicating of a, having a very small willy um and it's because if people are frightening and people are scary if they're driving up behind you in a big suv and they're about to mow you down they're intimidating so you're going to think they've got a big willy but actually, so then you try and sort of, you know, reverse psychology that and think, oh, they've just got a small one, really. But why does it happen? Well, nobody really knows. I mean, the only other kind of study on sort of stress and anxiety and something in the related area was done by actually the guy that supervised my PhD 20-odd years ago. And he did some serious work in sexual fantasy. He got a lot of kind of the proper proper equipment, including a photoplasmograph, which measures blood flow to the vaginal wall. And he, what he did was he gave women and similar kind of devices for men. He gave people these devices and then got them to read um, sexual fantasy literature. Um, so things like Fifty Shades, which I'll come on to in a minute. And he found that actually the ones, the sexual fantasies that made people feel the most uncomfortable were the ones that actually got the most aroused. So if you were a very kind of quiet, meek, librarian-y type person and you were reading something about being really dominant and dominating somebody, then that really stressed you out, but you got much more turned on by it. In the same way, if you're a big, important bloke and you run a big organisation and you're, everybody kowtows to you, you might like to be tied up a bit and be un, in very sub subservient. Um, I've, this is, again, back in, back in my weird and wacky TV days, I did actually go to a dominatrix's den, two of them. And I've never worked out, is it dominatrixes, dominatrices, or dominatri? I don't know. Anyway, but it was interesting sort of just going around this and seeing all these devices. It seems that this kind of thing is very popular with people who are high-powered and, and want to be subjugated. And the, all these device kennels and classrooms and the baby exploration room was something to behold. But it just seems to be very, very popular. If you're important, you'd get your jollies by being made to be feel very like worthless. So it just does happen that kind of we're afraid if it frightens us, we think it's got a big willy. But the thing I love about my area of psychology, implicit psychology, is that you could, these are probably the most ancient things, that we, psychological things that we've got. So you can think, well, maybe actually you might be able to trace some of these thinking back, some of these kind of behaviours back all the way through, through humanity. And very pleasingly you can, because nowadays if you feel a bit, you know, underwhelmed, and we know the myth it is, whatever, and you know that having something big and scary kind of is good for people, you know, makes you feel a bit better, well, 100,000 years ago, it was hand axes. 
but of course I have the biggest hand axe, therefore I must have the biggest woolly, I must be the most important person. So you can trace it back hundreds of thousands of years. But of course, we'd one, one big woolly man we do know about is Priapus. He was, a, he was a Roman god, Roman god of big willies and some fruit. And in the Priapic verse, which is this kind of verse that's attributed to him, he talks about the fact that he's got this garden in which he grows his fruit and he, he, he loves his fruit and anybody who steals his fruit is going to have some kind of scary thing done to them. So again, it's sort of that connection between big willies and people seeming like they're scary. And what he's going to do, if, if you're a bloke, he, he, will, he will sodomize you if you nick his fruit. If you're a woman, he will, he will futter, ejaculate over you. Um, or if you're a man with a beard... And then there's this kind of paragraphs of what he's going to do to you, which involves pretty much everything, teabagging, bagpiping, you name it, he'll do it to you. The conclusion is Priapus fancied blokes with beards. Anyway, what else can you say? So all of these all of these things, so you can trace this kind of actually people are quite, you know, the connection between big willies and intimidation and anxiety, it goes back all the way through our generations. But the big question... Does it matter? Well, thanks to those fun-loving Australians, we now know. They created a bunch of avatars, um, a proper very controlled, very well-designed study, proper avatars of the male form and showed it to about 350 women. And they varied things like height, shoulder to hip ratio and willy size. And they showed them to women and they worked out, they said, how attractive is this person? They gave them a load of people to, to, to uh, rate and they, from that, worked out what correlated most strongly with attractiveness. And by far the strongest indicator on this study of attractiveness was shoulder to hip ratio. So if you've got broad shoulders and you've got thin hips, that's the most attractive thing. Probably in real life, height is a big factor to that as well. Anyway, so... That is the answer. The answer is, does it matter? Probably not really. So, summing all of this up in one nice, neat little package, well, what have we learnt? If you call somebody, say they've got a big, a small willy, it's probably because they're a bit scary. If you want to spice up your sex life, do it somewhere scary. And if you are a bit worried about your willy size and you're worried it's going to make a difference... My shoulder pads are not a dick pump. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, oh, well, that was very interesting, and I apologise for my earlier puerility. God, what was wrong with me? You know, that was a perfectly adult and sensible talk. Anyway, famous actors with big cocks. There's loads of them, aren't there? There are. There's yes. The, the most famous one, Errol Flynn. There's... Ah, but he didn't have a big cock. He put it about that he had a large member, but actually it was just a clever way of attracting women to him. He apparently was entirely normally sized. Did, did he need any other gimmicks other than being one of the world's most famous actors, though? Well, I don't know. He was very drunk, so maybe he did need some kind of help. But uh, ones that famously are, and have more documentary evidence to back it up, are uh, James Woods, apparently, enormously well hung. Liam Neeson. I have a special set of skills in my trousers. and John uh, Noakes. From John Noakes and Willem Dafoe. We have it on good authority from our very own producer who has first-hand witnessed the uh, magnificence of uh, Willem Dafoe. I read that Noel Edmonds is just smooth. <laughs> Perfectly smooth, like, a, like an action man. <laughs> <laughs> 
It wouldn't surprise me at all. I'd be so unsurprised to find that. Look, we were trying to be serious about this. We were trying to argue why oh. why we demand of our heroes this this sort of the Priapus sort of myth is perpetuated in 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 in, in film stars and things like famous people, isn't it? Who, are, who we rumour to have large appendages, like um, yeah, like Rasputin, the whole story. Oh yes, well, sort of an anti-hero Rasputin, but he's a very interesting story to his to his member after after death. Um, it was reputed to have been cut off by the murder gang, the gang that finally got to kill him. Of course, then it was found apparently by the maid who hid it and kept it in formaldehyde or something akin. It was acquired by a group of Russian women who worshipped it uh, as a kind of a Priapus-type figure in a casket. His daughter found out about this, apparently, and uh, didn't like it, Marie Rasputin, so she got it back off them and kept it in her possession until she died in 1979, and then it was... And then proven to be a sea cucumber. Yes, quite. Hmm. Uh, but only after it was bought by a museum. And, in fact, even to this day, the Russian Museum of Erotica in 1994, claimed to have bought the real penis of Rasputin and have it on display. But, of course, it was supposed to have been dried and, and the real, real penis was supposed to be cut off and dried and God knows where that is. Uh, I've got two questions for you, OK? Yes. So, question number one is, do you think our probably unhealthy obsession and fascination with our... Um, Membrous, virilis. Yeah, yeah. Our, uh, is largely down to... A history of Christianity saying that's naughty, that's dirty, don't do that. Well, um, no, because if you go, as she says, if you go back to cave paintings and, and pre religious or pre sort of Western religious figures, I think it's much more to do with the, the basic human psychology that the blokes sort of see big member as something uh, sort of magnificent. But the Greeks didn't. Um... There's small penises on the statues of all their gods. Well, that's just not to make the people who commission them feel uh, insufficient. If you turn up to your rich benefactor with a, <laughs> a David with a, a sort of nine-incher, he's sort of going, oh, right, thank, nobody, thanks if you make, much. If you were making no, a statue... That particular pope would be upset, I would have thought. A statue of a god like Pan, you yes. would have thought it would be a no-brainer to make Pan well endowed because well, he was... Well, uh, maybe there's different sensibilities there, but it's certainly Priapus, for example, she was talking about, you know... Mm. The, yeah, blokes with beards, you three, you'd be in big trouble. You'd be, Priapus would be all over you like a rash, like a cheap suit. Uh, and talking of Priapus uh, uh, being all over you like a cheap suit, as it were, it's time we moved on to, to biscuits, isn't it? it? Well, I was going to ask a second question. Oh, go <clears> on then. A more difficult question, and that would be, if if we were two female presenters, yes. how would we have approached... Would we have approached? We wouldn't have approached the subject of Big Willies with the same puerile humour that, that the two of us have raised on on yeah, Fizz no, and Monty Python. Yeah, because women never laugh at Big Willies. You're no, right. no, 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 they no. They don't find it at all. Funny. No, but I wonder. I wonder what. I don't have an. I don't have an answer. But I wonder if we were if we were two female presenters, what what angle we would have taken on this on this subject in discussing it. Um, well, probably a more jaded one, I would have thought, because I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure that women are quite bored of men being obsessed with the size of their willies. Um, because yeah, you've got a point there. <laughs> but, really... well, no, but what's curious is that the, the talk that Alistair gave, yeah. there was there was a dip, disproportionately large number of... Um, it was of... about size of shoulders, wasn't it? That was attractive. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. No, I, was, no, I was going to say, uh, sorry, of, of women in the audience. We, it was, oh. it was, it was mainly women that came to this talk, which, oh, did, which did, I wasn't, did it? I wasn't expecting. I was expecting it would be blokes like us who braised on Viz, um, <laughs> thinking there'd be some cheap knob gags. But, right. but, but actually, there was, yeah, there was a lot of women came came to this talk. Well, I, I think it's quite normal to be more interested in the in the the reproductive organs of the opposite sex. You know, if someone said to me, "We're, we're going for a week long conference on." On ladies' bits or uh, on gentlemen's bits, I, I would probably choose ladies' bits because you know 
I've had a lifetime growing up with at least one gentleman's bit. You know, I, that, that makes sense to me. I think it's the fascination of the other, the danger, the exoticism. It's like you said, it's, it's, it's you know, if you want to increase the virility of your sex life, do it somewhere dangerous. The, 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 there is something exciting and dangerous about a strange figure uh, walking towards you with a large member of virilis, as, as I did at the start of the uh, podcast. You know, it does make sense, I think. Um, and talking of which, let's and get on to digestive biscuits. Come on. It probably is time to move on. And this is a non sequitur, but it's a, it's a key element of our podcast as well, which is our, our biscuit facts time. Yes, it's we time. We haven't done biscuits for a little while. We haven't. And uh, although this has got nothing to do whatsoever with the subject matter, we have chosen the king of the biscuits, the digestive. The digestive. Here we go. Nothing whatsoever to do with the subject. Um, this, I'm afraid this is a chocolate digestive. This which is a bit is, of a cheat, isn't it? It is a cheat. You're passing it over to me, and I'm I've got to be say, I'm delighted that it's a chocolate one, not a plain one. Mm. I'm expressing mm. my prejudices um, already. But now the digestive is... is well, a, well. The digestive, first of all, we have to say, is seen as... Well, it's the it's the UK's best-selling biscuit. Which astonishes me. It does astonish me too. It's kind of disappointing. It, it does it does sort of say a lot about the um, the British mentality, which is, oh, that'll do. It's a utility isn't biscuit, isn't it? It is a utility Because you can eat it biscuit. with cheese, you can eat it, we can dunk it. It's, an, it's a good all-rounder. If you put them out, no-one's actually going to go, ugh. It's a safety biscuit. Well, well, you say that, but I've got some quotes here. Now, I've, I've done some mm -hmm. extensive research on the internet into people's different perceptions of the digestive. And there's more negativity, I would say, on the net towards the digestive than positivity. I've got some quotes here. Mm -hmm. In a biscuit selection box, you never go for the digestive first. I've got to say, I agree with that. That's true. They're always left. At Christmas, if there is some kind of... They're always the one that's left till May. And they go, and they mm. go, and they go a bit soft as well, don't they? Mm. Um, the digestive is little more than slightly damp cardboard oh that's harsh that's that harsh there's more fun to it than that you know i i'm I, i'm i'm not a champion of it but i do like bill bryson's one which is um digestives are a british masterpiece <laughs> you think he's being sarcastic no i think he means it i remember reading this uh, and he talks about the, the british approach to biscuits is that you have a little bit of pleasure not a lot yes so if yeah. you're being a bit naughty you'll put a, a current in it you know not not slather it in chocolate and have cream cheese on the it chocolate and, does work yeah the chocolates, but got, um, i've got another one here digestives are pointless no, worse than pointless. They're a willful refusal to accept the opportunity of topping it with something delicious. It's like eating a dry pizza base. <laughs> but then we are see we are sit here sitting it. It has a topping. It has it has the chocolate topping. Yeah. I have to say though, with with Yum. with butter on it, I, I find a, a digestive delicious. I do. I do think that the, the one of the you're reasons... Facing, you're, you're basically saying the same thing that people do with Rivitas. The adverts with Rivitas go, look look at all these gorgeous toppings. No, but Rivitas but really do Rivita. taste like, like, you know, the, the bottom yeah. end of a pair of slippers, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's true. I've got to say, it, it, it does come into its own, I think, with, with, with cheese and butter or with chocolate. Mm. Then the digestive, to me, suddenly makes sense. Now, the curious thing about, that, about the digestive is, is its name. Okay. Because I, what I hadn't realised until doing the extensive research that we always do for these podcasts... I often wondered why it was called the digestive, actually. Yeah, it does seem a strangely I've got unattractive admit, name. I'd never thought the about it. the elementary tract biscuit. You know. <laughs> yeah. I'd never thought about it or cared, if I'm honest. But uh, no. but what I discovered was that um, it, it came about because the digestive was invented by, by two Scottish doctors as a cure for indigestion. But what the one redeeming feature they have as a biscuit is the fact that they are not entirely sweet. They do have that... They're, perfectly on the sweet, savoury, umami sort of balance point, which means you can have them just as successfully with cheese as you can yeah. with with chocolate. Um, so that is what makes them a sort of masterpiece. They're right that they are they are the in-between... On, on a pH scale of biscuits, they are the pH neutral of biscuits, aren't they? They're, they are the ultimate utility biscuit for that reason. 
it, 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 it is it is your it is your utility biscuit. It's the, the the thing you wear things on top of. You know, you need underpants, but they don't make sense without trousers on top, do they? Well, anyway, that's my feelings on digestive biscuits. And you know what? For the last five or maybe ten minutes, we've managed to have an interesting and uh, educational discussion Quite. on something without resorting to puerile humour, which Absolutely. I was worried about. We to can be pat ourselves on the back for that one. And we let's can... well, let's let's wrap up with the with the competition and get yes. the hell out of here. Yeah, so quite. so I don't know. Here's an idea for a competition. Maybe we could get let's list... have a let's have a biscuit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let's have a... okay. So that well, we were talking about toppings. Let's if we ask listeners to produce their favourite topping, produce their own topping for yep, the biscuit, sweet or savoury, let's say, and and send it in on top of a digestive biscuit, and we'll sample these and um... we'll tell you which tastes the best. Oh no. <laughs> Oh, what have I said? <laughs> the Auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. David Mountfield. The producers are Lance Dan and Andrew Mayling. You can discover more about the show at oddpodcast.com where you can find out about upcoming events and festival shows. If you'd like to give a talk about something that you're passionate about, at one of our venues around the UK, then email us at contact at oddpodcast.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at oddpodcastuk. If you like the auditorium, then please leave a review for us on iTunes. 